Hello, Florida Bar members and Florida registered paralegals. This is a quick reminder from the Standing Committee on Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers that you are approved to use the Florida Lawyers Helpline, a completely free and confidential around-the-clock helpline designed to support you in managing the challenges of both your personal and professional life. By dialing 833-FL1-WELL or 833-351-9355, you can connect with mental health professionals who are ready to assist you. Take advantage of up to five complimentary in-person or telehealth counseling sessions annually. And remember, there's no limit to the number of calls you can make. Reach out today. You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbrey. I'm the director of the Practice Resource Center and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a senior practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So when we are coming up for uh, coming up with ideas for our podcast, we try to stay within three general topics, law office management, legal technology, and mental health and wellness, because we believe that those are the essential elements of running a successful practice. And I feel like today's episode spans all three of those categories. During the pandemic, almost all of us participated in remote work. We got very comfortable with some new technology, um, developed some new habits or routines. But as time went on, there were a lot of strong opinions about the pros and cons of working from home. Everyone experienced it differently. I personally started using my lunch break to do things like exercise or start laundry, but I also miss my coworkers. And some organizations enthusiastically embraced working from home. Some adopted a hybrid system, and while others decided to have everyone return to the office. This created some friction and put a lot of pressure on the people who had to make these decisions for their employees because while you want your staff to be happy and healthy, you still need to get the work done. Today, we're going to explore a third option that is so simple yet has the potential to make almost everyone happy and has been proven in real-life testing to increase productivity and profitability. It's known as the four-day work week. Joining us today to discuss the four-day work week study is Joe O'Connor, the director and co-founder of the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence. The Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence is a global initiative based in Toronto, Canada, launched in partnership with leading UK and US people-first transformation company, Curium Solutions. Previously, as the chief executive officer of Four Day Week Global, Joe led the design and implementation of Four Day Week trials all over the world, supporting hundreds of employers and thousands of employees to make the transition to reduced hour, productivity-focused working in 2021 and 2022. Joe holds an MBS in Strategy and Innovation Management and a BBS with honors in accounting from the Galway Mayo Institute of Technology, as well as an advanced diploma in employment law from the Honorable Society of King's Inns. 
Joe recently led a research project on work time reduction as a visiting research scholar with Cornell University in New York City. He is now based in Toronto, where he heads up Canadian operations for Curium Solutions in addition to directing the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence. Joe is also formerly the chairperson of the four-day week Ireland campaign, having founded the coalition in 2019, where he developed the world's first four-day week pilot program and research project in 2021. He has been active on the issue of working time reduction since 2018, when he organized major international conference and research paper on the future of working time. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hi there. Pleasure to join you. So, Joe, before we jump in and discuss all the findings from the study, tell us what the motivation was for conducting a four-day workweek study and what factors led to the decision to investigate this topic. What got you started? So I became interested in this subject for the first time back in 2018, which was before this became a very buzzy, popular <laughs> discussion amongst HR leaders and uh, amongst employers. And it was really motivated by a research study I was involved in in the Irish public sector. I'm originally from Ireland, and we conducted this study looking at work-life balance. And specifically, I was interested in this new concept of the shorter working week. There had been some trials in Denmark and Iceland and New Zealand, which were emerging at the time. And one of the things that really stood out to me from the findings of that research, which has really stuck with me in my career since, was the, the very high volume of working parents, mostly women within the Irish public sector, who had already moved to reduced hour schedules, um, often four-day weeks, as they came back from maternity leave or for childcare or work-life balance reasons. And almost universally, their experience was that their expectations in the job and their responsibilities in the job were the same as they were when they used to work five days. That got me thinking about this idea of Parkinson's law, this idea that a task expands to fill the time available for its completion. And certainly in my work over the last five years or so, you know, it, it's really demonstrated to me that that is a concept that holds true in a very large number of modern organizations. Tell us again what it, the task expands to fill the time. What's, what law is that? I want to write that down. So it's called Parkinson's Law. Okay. And very simply, it's this idea that if you have four hours available to complete a piece of work, often you'll take four hours to complete that piece of work. If you've got one hour to complete that piece of work, often you'll find a way to get it done in that one hour. And I guess the four-day workweek trials that I've been involved in leading have almost been the reverse of Parkinson's Law. What they've done is they've introduced a, a constraint and... Um, They've made time a scarce resource, and they've forced organizations and people to find ways to do the work that they previously did in 40 hours or across five days much more efficiently. And organizations have really used this as a catalyst to streamline their operations, to change their work practices, and to improve their processes. Uh, one of the things I mentioned is that we like to cover mental health and wellness. So I wanted to ask specifically, what did the study show about the impact of a four-day work week? How did it have an impact on the quality of workers' mental health and wellness? So there's been a lot of research um, out there over a long period of time that suggested that working long hours can lead to negative well-being outcomes, can lead to increases in burnout, increases in stress. 
this is something that I know for a lot of people within the legal profession is is constantly something you're thinking about. It's a profession that you know often is known for having workloads that can be at times unsustainable, leading to people feeling burnt out and overworked. And the results from the trials that I've been involved in, including the, the world's largest study, which took place in the UK, involving 61 companies and just under 3,000 employees, showed statistically significant improvements across a whole range of different well-being indicators. This was, you know, this ranged from the obvious to, you know, things like burnout, things like work-related stress, to the less obvious, where we actually uncovered that staff participating in the trial were sleeping on average for around an hour longer every night. Um, so we saw a reduction in um, sleep deprivation levels, which is is uh, assessed by researchers as anything less than seven hours on average a night. That went down from 50% to less than 20%. And I think really that the, the key takeaway from this was that while some people feared going into the trials, you know, and, and this is something that the regularly comes up from employees. It's this fear that if you're expected to deliver the same results or the same outcomes in less time, will that lead to work intensification? Will that mean that actually we'll be more stressed out trying to do the work faster, trying to do it harder, do it more intensively? But the results showed a different story. They showed that actually these productivity gains were being brought about not by organizational speed up, but by organizational redesign. So actually, people were changing the way that they worked. They were producing the same output, but they were doing it with fewer or with more efficient inputs. Can you explain to us the 180-100 model uh, that was developed for the study and what criteria were used to determine its effectiveness? So the 180-100 rule originated from a company called Perpetual Guardian in New Zealand, um, and the co-founders of Four Day Week Global, the nonprofit organization that was leading the trials, of which I was the CEO across 2021 and 2022, um, really adapted that model from the successful trial in Perpetual Guardian, which is a estates and wills company based in New Zealand. And the idea was very simple. It was 100% of the pay. So it was, it was a commitment to, to retaining pay at the same level for employees. 80% of the time, so it was a reduction of 20% in working hours, but in exchange for a commitment to delivering 100% of the productivity. So the challenge that was posed to staff in that particular trial was you can have a four-day work week or you can have a reduced hour work week for the same salary, provided you're able to continue to deliver the same level of productivity and performance within the business. And that worked for Perpetual Guardian. That was the model that was, was developed for the, the, the global trials. And for the vast majority of companies that participated in those trials, they have succeeded. They've managed to maintain and in some cases even improve productivity. And they've gone on to make the policy, in most cases, permanent within their organizations. I love that. And and how does the 100-80-100 model compare to alternative arrangements, like, for example, working four days with longer shifts? So at the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence, we aren't quite so prescriptive in terms of it needing to be a 20% reduction in hours. We work with companies who move to nine-day fortnights, half-day Fridays, you know, shorter work days. Sometimes they might move, might move to a four-day week where it's for slightly longer days, but it's still an overall net reduction, genuine reduction in working time. Um, we feel that that's the, the key thing that you need to have that, you know, that constraint and that incentive of reduced working time. 
I think some of the challenges with compressed working hours, particularly in knowledge sectors. So I've seen some examples within areas like manufacturing or retail where offering a four-day week with four 10-hour days with the same number of days, same number of hours restructured into four days rather than five. I've seen that work reasonably well and be, be positive for both employer and employee where you've got a model where it's very much the, the value is based on availability or, or the person actually being, you know, being available or, or responsive hour to hour in the job. And you see that a lot in manufacturing or retail. I think the challenge in knowledge work or in any kind of creative work, I'm not persuaded that four 10-hour days is necessarily a good thing from an employee well-being and burnout perspective. I think actually for, for many people, it might be detrimental. And I'm also not convinced that it's necessarily a good thing from a productivity perspective. I'm not convinced that, you know, for people that their ninth or their 10th hour on a Wednesday, for example, would be more productive than their first or their second hour on a Friday. So what we're talking about here is real reduction in work time, but using that as a catalyst to improve your organizational operations, you know, taking an operational excellence approach to finding efficiencies, to improving processes. We think that's really the key to success with this kind of work model. That's so true. I mean, just even stepping away um, and taking a break, if you're, if you're in, in the knowledge industry, you're more refreshed when you come back. So I, I think uh, I can see why pushing it for 10 hours is, is not productive right. uh, when, when you're, you know, when it's a mental exercise. Um, can you tell us across, so you've done several different studies. What's, what, what's the average percentage of organizations that decided to continue on with a four-day work week after the trial period ended? Over 90% in all of the major trials that have taken place so far, 91%, 92%, and 95% across the North American, Australasian, and UK trials, which are the three largest ones that have, have taken place so far. What I would say is that there is some self-selecting bias in the trials. I think it's important to be upfront about that. Mm -hmm. This is not necessarily something that someone like me is coming on this podcast to sell as, this is really easy. But this is really straightforward. This is something that is hard. This is something that requires a real commitment to changing the way you work, to operational excellence principles. You know, it's not like a magic light switch where you reduce people's hours by 20% and all of a sudden, hey presto, productivity goes up. Especially in a world where the vast majority of your clients, your customers, your stakeholders are working five days. But this is something where if you get this right from a process, from a culture standpoint, and if you manage to pull this off the way we've now seen very many organizations from a lot of different sectors and industries manage to do so, then the benefits of this can be very, very real and very, very sustainable for your organization, particularly in a very competitive labor market. This is something where, you know, while it is growing in popularity, while it is much more common today than it was five years ago, this is still niche enough that it gives you a very significant competitive advantage when it comes to recruitment and retention, and it can be a real differentiator when it comes to attracting and retaining the best talent. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it's very attractive. There were a lot of organizations that decided that remote work just didn't work for them. So they wanted their people in the office. And then, you know, a lot of people left because that was so important to them after the pandemic. Um, can you talk a little bit about what were the challenges or concerns raised by either the employers and the employees regarding the implementation of the four-day week work? And how did the study address these concerns? So I think one of the biggest challenges that we see is this idea that, you know, it's getting the balance right between investing in the planning and preparation phase. So we definitely saw the organizations that put in the time, and put in the effort in advance of starting the trial or introducing the policy to change work practices, to put in place the kinds of processes that would facilitate and accommodate the reduction in work time. Um, those organizations had a much more seamless transition. It's not saying that, you know, organizations who didn't invest in, as much in the planning process that they necessarily failed. Lots of those organizations made it work in the end, but they had a much more bumpy, chaotic transition. So it is it is vitally important to invest in the planning process. But that said, you should not confuse that as a leader for thinking that you need to have the answer or the solution to every possible question or every possible problem in advance of starting the trial. Because the reality is, even the most detail-oriented detail CEO in the world does not know the day-to-day -day intricacies of each of their employees' jobs well enough to dictate from on high how they need to redesign it. This needs to be a bottom-up process. And I think organizations who already have a culture of trust, of partnership, of collective responsibility, um, where their employees take much more ownership of their day-to-day -day work practices, they're the kinds of organizations that tend to find this an easier lift. Right. I mean, and I think we've touched upon the, those subjects in the past in previous episodes. There are some jobs that are simply not uh, adaptable to remote or even hybrid work. You have to be in the office to perform the functions of the job. So it's, you know, I love that you said this is a bottom up kind of strategy because it's true. You know, I, I, you know, a CEO or a top level manager uh, may not be the best person to determine the efficacy of this, you know, within the various units uh, of the organization, um, which kind of leads into my next question. And you kind of covered it uh, in when we discussed the 180-100 model, but how did the study define and measure productivity and how did it compare productivity levels for employees on a five-day work week versus a four-day work week, especially somewhere like a law firm where, you know, you're not cranking out widgets like in manufacturing? Sure. And, and I guess this question is much more about how do you effectively measure productivity in general terms than it is about how do you measure productivity in a four-day week? Because the same question and the same problem exists regardless of the working model or schedule or structure that you have. So in these trials, what happened was there were some standardized measures um, like revenue, absenteeism, sick leave, employee turnover, you know, employee well-being, these were things that regardless of the type of work or the industry of the of the organization, you could measure them in a fairly standard way. But when it came to productivity, this was something that very much we worked, and this is a big part of the work that I do currently at the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence, is working with each individual organization to figure out what are the appropriate metrics that they need to use as an organizational level and at a team level in order to measure whether this policy is successful or sustainable or not. And I guess the key point that I'd like to make is 
that should be, you know, if you've got a problem with measuring productivity when you're working five days, you're going to have a problem with measuring productivity when you're working four. If you've got a very well understood, very well communicated um, way of measuring whether you're hitting your targets or you're achieving your, your objectives within your organization, then the same things that matter to you when you work five days are the same things that are going to matter to you when you work four days. So we would encourage companies to stick very much if they've got those measures in place. You don't need to redesign the wheel. Um, you know, customer service standards, um, you know, all of these things are things that are still going to be important to you when you move to a four-day work week. Do you know of any and can you discuss any case studies of law firms that have successfully implemented a four-day work week and any lessons that that may be gleaned from their experiences? And if not a law firm, maybe another professional type office, um, you know, an accounting firm, let's say. Sure. I've worked with lots of different professional services companies, be they law firms, marketing agencies, accountancy practices that have successfully moved to reduce our work weeks. And I think often the, the big challenge, um, which is not an insurmountable one, but without question, is an additional complicating factor that you need to overcome is the question of the billable hour. And typically what we see when it comes to law firms, whether it's JMK solicitors in Northern Ireland that I worked with a number of years ago, um, there's two law firms in Canada, Y Law, Assembly Law Practice in Vancouver, and also the Ross firm in, in Southern Ontario that have successfully moved to four-day workweek models. And typically what they tend to do is one of two things. They either maintain the billable hour structure and they find sufficient overheads and, and efficiencies within their non-billable time that they're able to maintain their billable hours at or near the same level. Or alternatively, they use the process of moving to a shorter work week to change the way they bill. So they move to either wholly or in part to fixed fee or value-based or project-based billing. And sometimes it's a combination of those two approaches. And I think that's a conversation that a lot of law firms are having now, this idea of moving more towards outcome-based um, measurement and, and really decoupling that relationship between hours and, uh, and revenue. But that's not a prerequisite. We've definitely seen lots of law firms do that who've moved to shorter work weeks, and the same goes for, for other professional services companies. We've also seen companies maintain the billable hour structure, but manage to find a way to accommodate this. And that really depends on your utilization rate. It depends on a whole range of different things. And these are the kinds of things that we, we work with organizations to help them tease out and figure out uh, as part of that, that design phase. Yeah. So you hit the big one, the billable hour. I mean, obviously I can see a law firm saying we don't want to have fewer hours to be billing. So, I mean, that's straightforward, but I think a lot of people have already been trying to move to a, a flat fee or a, you know, a project fee to, to get away from that because it is such a cause of stress. But there, there's going to be other challenges that, that specifically law firms could encounter with a four-day work week. What, what did you see them doing? Were they closing one day a week or were there people like some of the staff worked Staggering. Monday through Thursday, yeah. yeah, like a flex schedule or what's what was the most common and what was the most successful um, answer to that? I would say in law firms, it was more common that it was achieved through a roster or a schedule or a shift pattern that would man maintain service coverage or across the five days. Um, you know, that question really depends on, you know, if you're, let's say, a marketing agency, 
where most of your work involves deliver X product for Y client in Z timeframe, where, you know, it's, it's not really about being available, you know, to pick up the phone any time of the day across the five days. It's much more based on producing and generating that value. Often agencies like that might look at this question and they might say, actually, we're better off having a universal day off, having everyone have Friday or everyone have Monday off, because it maximizes the collaboration time that we have available between our people to work on those projects. And it, it, you know, it, it means that we can improve coordination internally within our team. But if you're a really customer-facing business where a huge part of your value relies upon that availability and that responsiveness across a five-day week, then often it is about putting in place a shift pattern. We've seen, for example, the Ross firm, when they moved to a four-day week, they actually moved away from individual email boxes to team-based email boxes so people oh. could cover each other's work when they were um, when they were not on their scheduled day off. Um, so there's lots of different ways that you can do this. And I think really the, the common thing is, what are the things that, particularly in knowledge work, what are the things that people attack first in order to reduce their hours um, without impacting productivity? It's things like meetings, so unnecessary and overlong meetings. It's things like communications, and it's things like how they use technology. Um, these are the kinds of things that, that really we very commonly see organizations go after in, in an effort to, to make their organizations more efficient. One of the things that comes up in the mental health world with attorneys is there is a percentage that they're addicted to work. Um, did you did you find people, and it could have been in other industries as well, that were just so accustomed to working long hours, they didn't, like they couldn't adjust, they didn't know what to do with themselves? Or do, do even those people find the benefits and can be, you know, converted to seeing the way? That's a really good question. And it is something that I would say, you know, it happens in every industry, in every line of work that you have people for whom their personal identity and their professional identity are, are quite intertwined. Mm -hmm. And therefore, this ability to kind of switch off is a much more fundamental one for them individually than, than any structure that's in place within their organization. I would say it's probably more prevalent in advertising agencies and law firms than is common in, in other industries. This this idea that, you know, this culture, this trend, tradition of, you know, the client says jump, we say how high. Um, and that definitely means, you know, resetting boundaries and expectations is something which can be a heavier lift in those kinds of um, organizations than might be the case, let's say, in a tech company or a software company. Um, and I think sometimes it comes down to, it's not just about finding a way to do the same things that you used to do in five days and four days, because sometimes actually immediately responding to that email at, you know, the email comes in at three o'clock and your normal way of working is you get back to that at 3.15. But you need to start questioning, could that email have waited until next Monday? Was it urgent? Was it important? Was it something that we needed to deal with right away? And what was the opportunity cost of doing that? Did that distract that person or pull them away from other work, which was higher value adding, which was more immediate? Um, you know, so really thinking about task switching, flow switching, and the impact of being incredibly available and responsive at all times and the price of that and really getting that balance right is a very important part of this conversation. 
That makes sense. Law firms can be very traditional uh, workplaces. Um, and I think one of the big challenges to making big change a lot of time is, well, that's the way we've always done it. We've all heard that. Did, did you see differences generationally? Did you find that younger workers were more eager to, uh, you know, take this on versus did you have more trouble convincing people who had been doing it that way longer? What was the difference generationally? Yeah, I would say it was a factor, you know, um, I would say it's a generalization, of course, mm-hmm. but for people that were working a particular way for 20 or 30 years, the idea of radically rethinking that and reevaluating that, you know, maybe required a bigger journey than somebody who had been working that way for two or three or four years without question. And I think you see that at a leadership level as well. You know, I think that leaders who have embraced this policy, it probably does skew younger. Um, But I think there's a real opportunity for progressive, innovative law firms to look at this, to look at the opportunity to address unsustainable workloads and burnout, the opportunity to address issues with recruitment and retention, the opportunity to build a practice that you know, has leaner systems, leaner processes, more efficient ways of working. You know, we've seen not just in law, but in all kinds of industries, organizations who move to shorter work weeks use technology to streamline administrative processes, you know, automate certain tasks in order to accommodate this. And that was two or three years ago. The scope and the potential for that just in the last six months with new AI technologies like ChatGPT and AutoGPT, that has expanded, you know, I'm not even going to put a number on it, how how exponentially it's expanded. And that, you know, I think we can all see that's only going to continue. So I think there's an opportunity here to really be at the forefront of embracing new tools and technologies in order to make yourselves more efficient and sharing that benefit with workers in the form of reduced working time and really giving yourself a competitive advantage. I'm glad you brought up the chat GPT. That's such a hot issue in the legal world. I know it's affecting everyone. So you're right. Um, the, the rate of change has accelerated so much since since this, you started this in 2018. So you're right. There's so many ways to be efficient. Um, earlier, you said that um, uh, people were sleeping on average an hour more per night, which is a big deal. Like attorneys don't get enough sleep. Um, and I, when I was reading through some of the study, um, you actually, in some cases, had asked people, well, what are you doing with this third day of your life? Can you tell us some of the things people like with the work-life balance, what were, what were they filling that time with? So it tended to, to fall into one of a number of different categories, spending more time with family, whether that's with children, um, caring for elderly relatives. Sometimes it was investing more in the community. Sometimes it was taking on new skills, hobbies, pursuits, endeavors that maybe you previously didn't have the time to do. But look, I think the critical thing here is if you look at all kinds of different workplace sentiment surveys, the four-day week is almost universally, whether it's in the US, Canada, the UK, is universally coming up as the single most attractive benefit that would convince someone to either stay with an organization or move to a new one. And I think the reason for that is that the benefit is genuinely life-changing and transformative. You know, the stories that you hear about what this extra time actually means to people are very, very powerful. And I think 
that's really at the crux of this. It, this is, is as much a behavioral phenomenon as it is a scientific one. What's happening here? You know, if you're a manager and you walk into your team tomorrow morning and you say, I want you to get 20% more efficient. I want you to redesign and rethink the way that you meet, the way that you communicate, how you collaborate, how you use technology. You know, you would probably have some success. But the, the, the real game changer with the shorter working week is the carrot, the incentive, that this is something that because the benefit is so great for people, their willingness to engage with and their motivation and their focus to actually do things differently is really quite significant. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned uh, that there are different ways in which this can sort of be implemented and accomplished. For one, I mean, I'm a new mom. I think all our listeners know that. I have an eight-month-old at home and it, you know, practically speaking, I knew I had to come back to work. I knew the baby was going to start daycare. What I didn't realize is that I would only get about two hours with my baby every day oh, after work yeah. before they had to go to sleep. So I think you know, you just don't realize it until you're sort of at these various junctures in your life. Um, but it would be life changing. I mean, I, if I got a whole other day and we see it all across social media, like we need one day to get things done. We need one day to have fun and one day to rest. I mean, absolutely, it, it just mm -hmm. kind of makes sense, you know. So it's it's just one of those, uh, you know, you, like you said, universal sort of benefits that everyone would want it's like a win-win. I think the pandemic made us hungry for this because yes. we finally saw another way because right. we weren't commuting there and back. Right. We weren't, you know, wandering around shopping on our lunch breaks. We could do things that we wanted to get done at home. Right. I think everybody took a new look at their houses. They took right. a look at how they were living their lives. Their priorities shifted. Right, right, so right. I it's interesting to me, Joe, that you started this before the pandemic and then then we went through all of that. But it is a huge motivator. I mm -hmm. mean, personally as a I think as as a group, just speaking anecdotally, we're very productive. We're mm -hmm. high producers in our team. I and what has ended up happening just organizationally is we get more work because we're so productive. <laughs> yeah. we, we we are we are those people that are able to get you know what would take someone else a full week done in just a few days. Mm -hmm. um, so we're experiencing burnout, and I, I feel like you know we could compress that time easily. We could start this tomorrow and still get the same level of productivity. The difference being is we'd be way more motivated. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think, I think that's a beautiful thing. And, and I love how you framed it that way, you know, that it's just, um, you know, people will just automatically be more motivated and it'll, it, it, you know, you won't even have to sort of focus on the implementation so much in that, people will just be on board. You will get buy-in so much easier. And I don't know, it just it just sounds right. <laughs> the balance. I yeah, know. That is the correct It balance. just sounds beautiful. Um, so we like our listeners to always take sort of something practical that they can start tomorrow. And I know that, that this is sort of something that has to be intentional. And you mentioned before how it takes planning. But how can our listeners, for example, uh, go about shortening and reforming meetings or maybe, uh, you know, building periods of focused work, what are some tips that you can give our listeners for being more efficient right away? Because these were the three key changes in the study, right, right. Pl plus the um, using technology more yeah. thoughtfully. Yes. So some real specifics on that. When it comes to technology, I, I, I would say 
sometimes there can be an impulse that using technology more efficiently or using technology better involves introducing something new, a new tool, a new platform, a new app. Um, I would say that I've seen more examples of technology being taken away improving efficiency than I've seen technology being added in improving efficiency. What I mean by that is often the change involves really looking at the way that you're currently using your technology platforms and seeing if you can't use that more mindfully in terms of how and when you manage your email inbox or you check, check your Slack. Some of the organizations that have maybe you know, not got this right from the off, they've taken their meeting inefficiency and they've moved it into technology. So all of the kind of low or no value added activities that they were discussing in meetings, now they move them somewhere else. They weren't actually addressing the root cause of the problem and, and, and reprioritizing and really prioritization, accepting that you're not going to get everything done by the time the workday is over. You're not going to get everything perfect. These are the kinds of things that you need to, to make your peace with in order to be able to, to do this effectively and efficiently. I'd just like to make one final point for, for people in, the, in law firms, particularly in, in human resources roles that might be looking at this. I think when we think about the future of work and this idea of workplace flexibility, there's a lot of different options and a lot of different models out there. Um, and I think one of the virtues of the shorter working week lies in this idea of structured flexibility. If you look at this idea that, you know, some organizations now are taking an approach where they're saying to people, you can work when you want, you can work where you want, so long as the work gets done. And on the face of it, that sounds great. But actually, in reality, when you look at the outcomes, often with these kinds of ultra-flexibility models that are not structured, the benefit tends to be very unevenly distributed. It tends to be the access to it and the distribution of it can really change radically between different teams, can depend on the perception of your manager, can depend on gender dynamics, career progression dynamics. I think the beauty of the shorter working week lies in the fact that the benefit itself is fair and it's universal, but it also has this added impetus to really change the way you do things collectively. You know, no one individual worker has the agency to change meetings, processes, communications. That requires something, you know, that really drives collective action. And I think the shorter working week without question really does that. And you talked about one of the benefits is probably lower turnover, but I'm curious too, if you have some of your staff that's very productive. And like you said, you you have a level of trust among your staff. Um, were there companies that shed the employees that turned out to maybe they were they were low productivity or productivity, or maybe they didn't get on board with the thing? Was, was there that kind of turnover where they just could be more lean once they figured some of these, you know, they fine-tuned some of the things they were doing? I have definitely seen it happen that people have left companies because the four-day week and, and the new way of working just didn't sit with them. You know, they, they were accustomed to and happy with working the old way. I've also seen organizations that have just accommodated that and have just said to people, you know, we're going to do the trial. If it works for the organization as a whole and we decide to make it permanent, but you would still prefer to work five days, then, you know, almost so long as the work gets done, we're agnostic on that. So I, I've seen different ways as to how that gets managed. What I would say is, you know, sometimes there can be this, you know, this perception that the four-day work week is a policy, you know, that there's some kind of inherent laziness in that. I think you've touched on something there in that 
people who maybe are a little bit more disposed to coasting tend to be the people that hate this. Because what this is doing is it's shining a light on making your organization more productive so everyone can share in the benefit of that extra time off. Um, you know, it, I, I, I've, in my experience over the last five years, I've never seen this as something once high performers actually get what this is about trying to achieve, I think they really get on board with this. And I think that that's going to be um, very profitable for an organization because as soon as you uh, measure productivity and you identify how you're going to measure productivity, you're taking a hard look on what is everyone doing. And if, and if like, I, I would welcome that, like, please come see what my team is doing. <laughs> we're doing so much, but I could see why that would be almost a threat to people that were, they wanted to keep it vague. You know, they had a lot of busy work. So I think it's good, you know, from that point of view, I could see it's really benefits a company to start measuring those things. The other thing that we've, we've definitely seen this year, and this is kind of a 2023 thing, 2021, 2022, most organizations that were doing this, they were doing it almost as an add-on to remote or to hybrid working. You know, they were already leading in every other form of flexibility, and they wanted to be ahead of the curve on this issue too. Um, so we saw this most typically as kind of an add-on to complement remote or hybrid working policies. This year, we've seen, and we're working with one regional insurance broker in the UK, who's almost adopting the four-day week as an alternative to hybrid working. They want people back in the office, and they realize that trying to get people to come back into the office full-time without any other carriage in exchange is going to make them uncompetitive. It's going to lead to talent flight. So what they're doing is they're offering the four-day work week as an alternative for remote and hybrid working. And I think that's where this is now starting to, to sit as one of a series of choices, whereas up to now, you know, typically the organizations that did this, they maybe couldn't compete in the top 5% of compensation in their industry. Maybe they previously did remote, hybrid, flexible working as a way to give themselves competitive advantage. Then the pandemic came along and it swallowed up that competitive advantage because that became the industry standard. Now everyone was doing this and they turned to the four-day week as a new thing to give them an edge. Um, but I think the reasons why companies are doing this and why leaders are being attracted to this is starting to, to change and is starting to widen. So at the beginning, I asked you what percentage had continued on, um, which is very high. People love this. But there is that small percentage of companies that decided to not continue the four-day work week. And, I'm, and that actually confuses me because even owners and managers are human beings. So like if you can demonstrate to them that they're going to have a much higher quality of life, um, I can't imagine why they didn't continue on. What were the reasons that those companies gave? I would say that, you know, there are some organizations that might be not right for this culturally. You know, if you're doing this purely as a kind of a branding recruitment or retention tool, but you don't have that culture of trust and collective ownership over the policy, I think often this actually gets met with fear and skepticism rather than being embraced by people. And I would also say there's some companies that might be right for this culturally, but they're just not ready operationally. Um, you know, we, we do this diagnostic process with organizations, which is really a feasibility study and a readiness assessment of, of how ready is that organization to move to a shorter working week and what are the kind of challenges and barriers that they need to overcome in order to make it work. And sometimes, you know, the outcome of that might be we might say 
you're ready to move to a trial and here are the things you need to address in the planning phase. And sometimes the outcome of that might be, you know, you need a more significant operational excellence intervention before you even start down the road of, of reduced working time. So, you know, sometimes timing is important. And sometimes the reason why companies don't continue with the four-day week is unrelated to the four-day week. It could be a change of leadership. It could be some kind of an external event. Um, it could be a financial crisis. Um, and it might just be the case that some of those companies have, you know, determined that now is not the right time. Um, that can be quite a, a common reason. But as I said, you know, there is a self-selecting bias in the trials. I am not for one second trying to convince your listeners that if you did a randomized trial across the American economy, that over 90% of organizations would be ready to make this work right now. Um, you know, the types of companies in the trials were typically companies who decided they wanted to be in them because they felt that this policy was right for them and they felt they were ready for it. Um, but I think there's lots of organizations out there who are and who haven't yet taken the leap. And I think they have a real opportunity to do that. Absolutely. So let's end today's discussion by talking about the financial bottom line, because that is likely one of the biggest factors that organizations are going to consider. What happened to the profitability of the 90% plus companies that participated in the trials and that kept it? So we saw a similar outcome in the largest trial in the UK. We saw a small improvement in revenue um, on average amongst the participating companies when compared between the end of the trial and the start of the trial. But they had about a 30% improvement in revenue year on year. So comparing the end of the trial to the previous financial year. So this is a policy which tends to be adopted by growing successful businesses. Um, and there's nothing in the evidence out there to suggest that you can that moving to a four day week is not something that can be done alongside having a really profitable, successful business. The evidence is very clear that it can. Excellent. And so we've talked about um, these trials in past tense. Can you tell us a little bit or what's ongoing? What's next for you? Yeah, what are you doing next? <laughs> So actually, one of the things that we're really focused on at the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence is really drilling down at an industry level and providing much more custom one-to-one -one support for larger companies, more complex companies, you know, strategically significant mid-market companies who are interested in moving in this direction. Um, we've developed a work time reduction roadmap, which often looks more like a 12 to 24 month transformation process than a six month trial. But you know, the types of companies we're working with now, it's not hundreds of companies taking part in trials. Most of the, the, the businesses in those trials, you know, skewed towards the SME sector with, with some exceptions. We're working now with law firms, insurance brokers, um, you know, various different companies with hundreds of people to try and help them to, to figure out the way to make work time reduction work for their company. Um, and this is definitely an industry where we have a very significant interest. Um, we think that there's a challenge here, but there's also a big opportunity. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited about what this could do um, you know, to, to build a future for the legal sector that's more sustainable um, and that's better for people. Very important work. So does your company, if a, if a company is interested in doing this, can they reach out to your organization to get resources? Like, can they hire you as a consultant? How does that work? 
Sure, they can find us on worktimereduction.com is our website. Um, we're also on LinkedIn at the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence. They can find me directly, Joe O'Connor, on LinkedIn. We'd be happy to hear from people. My direct email is joe at worktimereduction.com. And absolutely, this is something that you can take a free assessment on the website, which is, is something that we've developed really to get leaders thinking about the right kinds of issues. What are the, the kinds of things that they need to be taking into consideration as they explore whether a work time reduction model is a fit for their organization or not. They can book a free consultation and we're happy to provide resources and also um, more, more involved support if that's something that an organization wants to, wants to explore. Wonderful. Thank you. And we'll link to all of that for our listeners in the uh, episode description. So feel free to browse through everything Joe just mentioned. So it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much, Joe O'Connor, for joining us today. No problem. It was a pleasure. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.